Hello and welcome to another episode of Food To Go, the new food podcast. I'm Bethan and I'm joined by my lovely co-host Josh. Hi Beth, how are you? Very well, thank you. Very well, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I wonder if the listeners can pick up something a little bit different from the recording today because me and Bethan are actually sat in the same room (gasps) using the same microphone for the very first time. So very exciting. Um, Fingers crossed the audio quality is just as good or just as poor, depending on your your opinion. (laughs) Also, we're really sad that we're so excited by this. Yeah, well, we just, we drove in together as well today and we were just chatting. It's a lot easier to speak to somebody when you're face-to-face and you can read their eyes and read what they're going to say and you won't Mm. get those awkward interruptions. So yeah, we're really looking forward to recording some more things in person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, today is all about one of the world's favourite foods. Some of you may have listened to our episode on the history of hemp, which is, I dare say, quite a niche food stuff that can't be said of today's topic because we're talking all things potato. I would put a lot of money on the fact that most of you listening will have consumed potato in some form, certainly in your lives, maybe even in the last week. <laughs> in your lives. Me yesterday made some lovely mashed potato. Very, Brilliant. very Did good. Did I have potato? I had tortillas. They made potato, aren't they? Ex- Can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Maybe. Um, oh, don't know. Well, there you go. Certainly this week, I had a lovely roast dinner on Easter Sunday. So, do you know what happened to me though? My other half put the butter, which was empty, back in the fridge. So I'd made myself a lovely lot of mashed potato and I had no butter. Yeah, that's criminal behaviour, isn't it? That, it is. Um, I actually took a photo of it. Oh, it's grounds for divorce. I really do. <laughs> We're not married. Well, even still. <laughs> I'll marry him, then I'll divorce, divorce him. Divorce him for the butter, yeah, 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 terrible. I mean, mash with no butter is extremely sad. I know, it was It was very sad. Yeah. It's, um, you can never have too much butter either, I find. No. If you're not sure, put more butter in. That's, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. that's definitely the way to go. Yeah. Anyway, enough of our mashed potato methods. It should come as no surprise that the potato is it's a pretty important crop when it comes to global food security. of the world's food energy needs are actually supplied by potatoes, rice, wheat, and maize. So it fits into one of those big four carbohydrates. And as a result, when disease and climate change even uh, results in failed crops, it can be pretty catastrophic. I read something that might interest you actually, Josh. I I know that we're delving into the history of the potato, but before we do, I thought you might be interested to hear about something we might see more of in the future. I read that the low diversity of potato plants makes it susceptible to disease. And scientists have recently decoded the highly complex genome of the potato. Potato is becoming, you know, quite an integral part of certain populations, for example, China, This is such an important piece of research because what it means is it's possible to implement genome-assisted breeding of new potato varieties that will be more productive, more resistant to climate change, and that could have a huge impact on delivering better food security in decades to come. That is really interesting, actually, Beth. It's probably a bit of a precursor to what we're going to speak about today which part of which is a massive failure of the potato crop. So I think genomics is a key technology. We'll certainly see more of that in the future. But as I just said, we are looking at one of the great failures of the potato crop in today's episode two. It's very difficult to talk about the history of potato without talking about the next section of the podcast, really, isn't it? Both leapt out at us. And so to find out a bit more about the slightly darker side of the potato story, we're absolutely honoured to be joined by Professor Cormac O'Grian of University College Dublin. Cormac, thank you so much for joining us on Food2Go. 
No problem. So, Cormac, you're a font of knowledge when it comes to famines and food insecurity. And there is, of course, one historical example that is probably leaping out at the audience, and that is the Great Irish Famine of the 19th century. So can you just very briefly explain for our audience how this famine began and why the potato is so important to that story? Well, obviously, the famine is linked to the the fungus, the failure of the potato, first of all in 1845, and then much more radically and uh, more seriously in 1846. I think it could be said that had the fungus struck only in 1845 and then disappeared, nobody would be talking about the Great Famine in Ireland because people in Ireland had grown used to partial failures of crops, particularly the potato, in the decades before the Great Famine. But they were resilient enough to cope with once-off failures. It's only when you get repeated failures, and this is what, of course, happened in uh, 1845, 1846. And then, again, the issue in 1847 is that the amount of potato seed planted was very low and therefore potatoes were uh, scarce again in that year. So you have a whole succession of disasters uh, with the potato. And that is as as well as, of course, lack of relief and uh, the wrong kind of relief from the authorities. That is what led to the greatest uh, natural or if you want to call it that, the greatest disaster associated with food supply in Europe in the 19th century. Potato failed significantly before, you know, the the 1840s. Well, there had been, like I said, partial failures. The, The most serious, if you want to go back to a really disastrous failure, it would have been in 1740. And uh, at that time, Ireland wasn't as dependent on the potato as it would be in the 1840s. Nevertheless, the south of Ireland, let's say the provinces of Leinster and Munster, they were already, the poor in those areas were already heavily dependent on the potato. And the problem in 1740 was extremely cold weather, so that the potatoes were in the ground and the ground froze solid so they couldn't be lifted out. And as it were, they they had rotted. They weren't available when people needed them. So it was a different situation. It wasn't a fungus. It was a cold spell, an extremely cold year, 1740, all over, all over Northern Europe. But of course, nowhere else was the dependence on the potato as great as it was in Ireland. And then there were, after that, failures in, you know, 1799, 1800, 1811, 1812, 1816, 1845 But then from my understanding, we get to a situation in the mid-19th century where 
it is very, very reliant, or at least the failure of that crop devastates. There's a gradual process. The potato is introduced into Ireland in the 17th century, and it spreads at first very slowly. And part of the reason for that, I suppose, is that the potato that arrived wasn't suited to Irish conditions. And there, there was a good deal of adaptation and experimentation with varieties and the development of new varieties in ways that we don't really understand. So that by the mid-18th century, in much of Ireland, the potato is already very important. But it's not as important as it would be. Dependence on it isn't as complete is probably the wrong word. By complete, I mean that in the 1840s, something like three million out of eight and a half million people consumed virtually nothing else. And these are the people I would call the, the potato people, you know, those who consumed potatoes with supplements of maybe skim milk, little fish from time to time, other vegetables. But the overwhelming item in their uh, diet at that time is the potato. And then you have lesser dependence by middle class people, by urban people, by people in terms of geography in Northern Ireland, where oats would remain more important than it was in the South. You know, But the dependence is very heavy. And I suppose the point is that it did allow population to grow as long as it didn't fail disastrously year after year. And that is why between 1750 and the time of the Great Famine, population growth in Ireland was faster than practically anywhere else in Western Europe. And not only that, the people were healthy because the potato was, as far as food quality, as far as health is concerned, good nutrition. It had what you needed to live on. And that's not true of any other food that I can think of. It's not true of rice. It's not true of wheat and, and so on. It's not true of cassava. So as a result, even though they were very poor in material terms, in terms of housing and clothes and, you know, consumer durables, the Irish were, they lived by the standards of the day, relatively long lives. And what I mean by that is life expectancy in Ireland on the eve of the famine was about 38, which is less than half of what it is today, but much higher than throughout most of Europe, particularly Southern Europe. And the other thing about the Irish is they were, by contemporary standards, they looked healthy. They were tall. Again, uh, you know, by our standards, they were, they were tiny. They're, the average height was five foot six or five foot seven. But by, again, the standards attaining in France or in Italy or Spain, not in England, they were relatively tall. So there are these special aspects to Irish poverty. It's sometimes summarized by the statement that if you had to be very, very poor, Ireland was probably a good place to be poor in until the potato failed. Mm. So, I mean, you said there, I didn't realise that the potato was so nutritious. Mm -hmm. Arguably, were they actually having a, a balanced diet? So could you say that it was a lack of balanced diet that led to the devastation inflicted on the island of Ireland? Yeah, well... In one sense, the diet, the diet was nutritionally balanced in that the potato provided what you needed to live on. But it was unbalanced in the sense that they consumed nothing else. And if the potato failed, 
there was nothing to trade down to because the potato was the cheapest food available. You know, in other situations, if wheat failed, you could maybe switch to rye or you could switch to potatoes or you could consume less meat. And in that, you know, but the trouble with the potato is that there was nothing to trade down from. And there's another aspect of the potato that maybe we shouldn't forget. And that is that unlike cereal crops, the potato could not be stored from year to year. So if you had a really huge bumper crop, you were able to feed yourself fairly well, but you could not hold over the third of the crop that was surplus to the next year. The best you could do with it maybe was to feed it to pigs and to animals and increase your livestock holdings on that basis temporarily. But this was a big drawback of the potato that you couldn't store it. Come on, we're coming to my favourite part of the interview because it's proper nitty gritty history stuff now, which is what I'm all about. I'm going to throw an absolute hand grenade in for you. It's a very, very big question. I suppose some main actors in the store of the Great Irish Famine, there's the, the island of Ireland, there's the British state, and then of course there's the United States where, where many, a lot of the Irish diaspora fled to. How would you evaluate the British state's response to the famine? Well, I would say that there was by no means an intent to get rid of the Irish. The notion that it was a deliberate genocide, I think, isn't very helpful. Having said that, I think that attitudes on high were callous and there was a lack of empathy for sure. And I think it's also true that uh, the government's hands were tied to some extent by ideology. There was the belief that in some quarters that the problem in Ireland was one of overpopulation and that this was divine providence uh, and that the only way to cure it was through a famine. There were those who believed that, who saw the, the famine as some kind of act of God. And then there were also those who held the view that, and it's a view that you'll hear even today in different contexts, the view that if welfare were too generous, that people would not learn the lesson that the famine was intended to deliver. So the Irish were treated harshly uh, during the famine. And the attitude of the government was, let's not err on the side of generosity, let's err on the side of caution. As a result, uh, people were uh, put to work in very tough conditions. They weren't paid enough to live on and they were put into workhouses where disease was rife. And there were all these policy decisions made which I think conspired to increase rather than to reduce mortality. It's true that in the early stages, and I'm talking here about in 1846 and through the first half of 1847, a lot of money was spent on public works and on relief in general in Ireland. It didn't help very much. And it could be said that in that period, in spring, summer, before the summer of 1847, some people, thousands of people were bound to die anyway because the crisis was so intense. But instead of realizing that this is a crisis that would take a a while to sort out, the government basically declared the famine over in the summer of 1847. They had the sense that the fungus had more or less spent itself 
at that stage that the crop in 1847 would be okay, that in order to get people to return to the land, they had to uh, go easy on public works. And the sense that the famine was over in 1847 and that henceforth Ireland had to look after itself resulted in a lot of excess mortality in 1848 and 1849. The famine really, this is the tragedy, the famine, we associate the famine maybe with Black 47 and, you know, trickling into 1848. But in Ireland, in, in parts of Ireland, in the west of Ireland in particular, the famine really isn't over until 1850 or 1851. It's no longer making the headlines, and it is no longer a cause of worry in Westminster. It isn't debated very much, but it, it continues. And like I sometimes, I don't teach anymore. I, I'm now out to grass, as it were. But I used to tell students uh, that there were, during the Great Famine, some cases of cannibalism. And this is something that I think people were not aware of. It wasn't prevalent, but they did exist. And, uh, you know, they're in different parts of west of Ireland. But the interesting thing is that they are all, with one exception as far as I can see, in 1849. Like I say, after the famine had been declared over already uh, two years earlier. So I would blame the government for that for not doing enough in 1847, and then basically for washing its hands of the problem thereafter. I think there is another way in which this is about pursuing the wrong policy rather than doing nothing. The Irish potato famine was an ecological disaster. It was due to a fungus which had a lasting impact on the potato for decades. And there would be no cure for that fungus until the bluestone solution that was adopted in the 1890s. Now, what this meant, of course, is that the population of Ireland could never go back to the eight and a half million there had been before the failure in 1845. That was simply not possible. That system was broke. So what do you do with the eight and a half million people? You either allow them die, or you put them on permanent welfare, or else you get them out of the country. And the best solution, obviously, was to get people out of the country, to help people to emigrate. And that meant to help the very poor, because others who could afford it left in their hundreds of thousands. Those who left, however, uh, who escaped from the famine were not the poorest of the poor because the poorest of the poor could not afford to go. So there is this, what I call, hierarchy of suffering. There are some who, you know, uh, survive the famine pretty much unscathed. There are small numbers who even benefit. Then there are those who are hurt, who are hungry, but who somehow survive, maybe through emigrating, and then there is the million or so who die in Ireland. And they are overwhelmingly the poor, not exclusively. There are some who die of infectious diseases like typhus who are not that poor. But it's overwhelmingly the very, very poor, the destitute, the people who had been dependent on the potato who die. And the only way they could have been saved, I think, 
and the economy could have been restored to normality without massive excess mortality was through helping people to leave. And the government refused to countenance that. People from all sides in Ireland said, you must help people to get out. And the thing is that at that time, this was a viable option. And it would not be a viable option today, say, if you had some equivalent catastrophe in Africa, and there are millions and millions of people dying. They're not going to be allowed into Europe and North America and Australia. But in the mid-19th century, Canada and America and were operating, and so was England as far as Ireland was concerned, because both England and Ireland and Scotland and Wales indeed were part of a United Kingdom. Irish people could get into all those places. So there was a sense in which emigration was a form of disaster relief. Emigration provided a safety valve. But more could have been done by subsidizing, by simply paying for the passage of the very poor. Now, it's also obvious that had several hundred thousand more landed in New York or Boston or Philadelphia or Baltimore or Montreal, that anti-Irish sentiment would have been even stronger than it actually was. The Irish were not welcome in America and in Canada during the famine, but they were tolerated. Nobody stopped them from coming in and nobody expelled them. And there would have been even greater hostility and there would have been even greater voting for xenophobic parties. And this is something that was a feature of the United States in the years after, just immediately after the famine. But emigration would have prevented, I believe, hundreds of thousands of people from dying. So, Cormac, although you certainly can't and you don't lay the blame at the feet of the British state apparatus in its entirety, no decisions were taken to worsen the famine. Yes. Is it true, this is something that I've, I've read and I've heard, and perhaps our listeners might have as well, is it true that there was enough food in Ireland during the famine to feed everybody on the island. I mean, it's such an emotive chapter of history. Charles Trevelyan comes off awfully. I mean, famously, he's included in the song Fields of and Rye, and he doesn't get a very good write-up, does he? Was there enough food going around to feed everybody? Could this have been avoided? I don't think there was. I think in order to, you know, balance the books in terms of nutrition, food imports were necessary. And of course, In 1847, from the spring, summer 1847, food begins to arrive in quantity. Not enough of it. The government could have been proactive. The government's policy was markets will solve this problem. Merchants, farmers abroad will see their opportunities, so food will flood into Ireland. On the other hand, people would stop exporting food from Ireland because there would be increased demand in Ireland itself for grain once the potato crop has failed. Now, there are two aspects to that. One is the lack of purchasing power. The very poor weren't able to afford food. And the second is that markets do not work as fast as that textbook model assumes. Certainly, merchants in faraway places in southern Europe, in Germany, in America, and Canada did see opportunities. And uh, particularly from the US, you know, people began to load boats with uh, Indian corn and, and in particular 
and uh, and ship it to Ireland, and that starts arriving in volume, like I say, in 1847. But and had that not happened, the situation would have been worse. So you can't have a situation when a staple crop on which, like I said, more than a third of the population depends on exclusively almost, fails for several years in succession. You can't have a situation like that and still say there's enough food for everybody. Now, what you are getting at there, I think, is that before the famine, a lot of food had been exported from Ireland to Britain, oats, barley, and even to some extent wheat. There is a sense in which Ireland was a kind of a a breadbasket for the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, Certainly not in the same sense that Ukraine is for much of the world today. You know, proportionately speaking, Ukraine exports a far greater share of what it produces than Ireland did on the eve of the Great Famine. But there is something to be said for the notion that there was some food being exported from Ireland at the very early stages of the famine, and perhaps the government could have done more, been proactive, and bought that food itself to provide the Irish with. To some extent, you know, this would have been a bit like feeding people who had been used to potatoes with food that was actually much more desirable than potatoes, feeding them with with corn and with barley, uh, which uh, they wouldn't normally have consumed. But at the same time, if there was food leaving Ireland, I think, you know, one can see the humanity of trying to divert that food to Irish people. And if they couldn't afford to buy it, then to subsidize or to provide that food to them free, not on a permanent basis, but for a few months, even, you know, in extraordinary, disastrous, cataclysmic times, extraordinary policies are required. Now, following the Great Famine, how did potato farming change? Very, very radically indeed. To give you some sense of this, on the eve of the famine, something like two million acres of potatoes were cultivated annually. Fifty years later, that was down to about 600,000 acres. So cultivation drops by two-thirds over that period. Now, the main reason for that is that the blight is still there. The potato before the famine yielded on average something like six and a half tons per acre. I don't want to get too technical here. But after the blight, not only are yields lower, they're lower on average by about a third, but they fluctuate much more. The potato is no longer as reliable as it had been before the famine. So people, farmers react to both the fact that the yield is on average lower, but also to the fact that the yield is unpredictable, less predictable than it was before this damn potato blight arrived. And that situation would continue, like I said, until people come up with this solution, which is pretty much the same solution as was from the 1890s on being applied to French vineyards form a bluestone solution. Let me again talk about yields here. In the year 1900, potato yields in Ireland were something less than three tons per acre. So that's half what they had been before the famine. 
they would never be that low again. And that is because of the bluestone solution. And after that, potato yields begin to rise again, and the potato crop becomes more reliable. But Ireland never becomes as attached to the potato as it had been before the famine. Now, there's another reason for that, and that is because potatoes are poor people's food. The Irish, by 1900 and into the 20th century, are increasingly well off. So they prefer to consume bread, and later on they would prefer to consume rice and pasta and so on, a diversified diet, so that potato cultivation isn't as attractive to farmers for that reason as well. Now, if you fast forward to today, Potato yields in Ireland are about three times as high as they were on the eve of the Great Famine. So we're talking about 18 tons per acre as opposed to six tons per acre. But the acreage under potatoes in Ireland now is minuscule. And the potato, as far as Irish farmers are concerned, doesn't matter at all. In fact, Ireland imports most of its potatoes. Most of the potatoes that are consumed in Ireland today are imported from abroad. Who would have predicted that 100 or 150 years ago? The potato, which was, like I said, you know, the Irish people were caricatured in cartoons as potato heads. Uh, There was this proverb in Ireland, translated from Irish, which went, potatoes in the morning, potatoes for uh, dinner, and if I woke up in the middle of the night and I was hungry, it would still be potatoes. <laughs> Nowadays, uh, people in Ireland might consume potatoes for one or two meals uh, a week, and uh, the rest of the time it would be some other form of, of carbohydrate. And what's more, potatoes in Ireland are consumed nowadays more in the form of chips than in uh, the form of boiled potatoes, which was the universal pattern in Ireland uh, before the famine. There is also the issue, what do potatoes today taste like compared to potatoes on the eve of the famine or potatoes 50 or 100 years ago? There are a number of answers. One is that the poorest on the eve of the famine were reduced to consuming a form of potato called the lumper. That's a variety which to most of us would be almost inedible today. It was a potato which had hardly any flavor in terms of texture. It wasn't very pleasant, but it did the job. It was nutritious enough. In between, there were other varieties which were quite tasty. And uh, I suppose today you would get some echo of that in varieties like the rooster, which is very very popular in Ireland still. I suppose nowadays people consume potatoes in ways where the taste, if you roast a potato, if you uh, use it in the form of fish and chips or you saute it or whatever, then the original flavor doesn't count for as much and isn't as important as it would have been to people 100 years ago. Absolutely. Some of those statistics, Cormac, were mind-bending. Really, really interesting. And just to finish off, Mm -hmm. do you think we could see a failure of the potato crop as cataclysmic or on a similar scale to what we saw in the 19th century today? With all the modern techniques and agricultural methods that we've developed, do you think we could see a similar kind of catastrophe develop elsewhere in the world? 
It's hard to imagine. Now, of course, for Ireland, this wouldn't matter at all because the potato doesn't count for anything anymore. As you said at the outset, there are other places now where the potato is assuming not the kind of importance it had in Ireland on the eve of the famine, but it's assuming a considerable importance as a part of a portfolio in the diet. Also, again, I use the, the term insurance. By having the potato there, as well as rice and cassava and rye and barley and Indian corn and what have you, you are, I suppose, ensuring that the supply of food will be fairly, can be relied on. Now, there is another aspect, of course, and that is that nowadays the potato can be stored in a way that was not possible in Ireland in the 1840s. We can freeze dry potatoes and uh, then, you know, provide it in the form of mash or frozen chips or whatever. And uh, in that way, you know, potatoes can be stored pretty much indefinitely, not for free, but they can be stored from year to year. Could there be a disaster of the Irish kind? Well, I would say that is unlikely for a number of reasons. One is potato dependence isn't as extreme anywhere as it was in Ireland. Secondly, when there are food harvest shortfalls today, it is much easier to deal with them quickly than it was in the mid-19th century, when we were still, after all, in the age of sale. The steamship was still a novelty on long-distance routes like the, across the Atlantic and was used mainly to convey passengers rather than uh, commodities. Then there is the fact that storage is possible, transport is quicker, there is more variety. So I wouldn't worry as much. The other thing is that solutions tend to be arrived at more quickly today. I mean, we've seen what's happened with Ebola, with coronavirus you know, people have come up with ways with dealing with those kind of crises uh, very, very quickly indeed. If some new fungus arrived, I think science is so far ahead of what it was. The fungus in, in Ireland was misdiagnosed. People didn't realize what it was. They had no idea. And there were those who believed this is something, this is a once-off, it's going to disappear. It took a little time for people to realize that that was not a case so that science could try to focus on the problem at hand. But again, as uh, I said, it took four decades really uh, for a solution to be arrived at. I don't think it would take four decades to arrive at a way of dealing with some new unforeseen fungus, some kind of a disaster of that kind. Maybe I'm being a bit complacent. But I think it's also important to realize what science can do for us, you know, to, I suppose, blend hope with being realistic and also add a dose of caution. I think that's a really nice way to end what has been quite a bleak part of the podcast, Cormac, but really, really important. Some reassuring words from yourself there. That is all we've got time for, I'm afraid, but that is a real shame because I could speak to you for another hour and a half. Um, Good, all right. If you do want to learn more about the topic, do check out the episode of In Our Time that Cormac appeared on. It's a really, really interesting listen. But Cormac, thank you so much for your time today and your brilliant insight. And hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. See you. Bye. Thanks a lot. Take care. <laughs> thank thank you. you. Bye. Well, Beth, I mean, I don't want to start because 
absolutely love history and I could listen to Cormac speak for hours. I think it's so interesting. It's so great to speak to people who know so much about a really, really interesting topic. But what did you think? I thought it was it was so nice to talk to him and actually learn more about this. And you could tell if, if we had a camera in here, I think people would be laughing because you were just nodding along and looking at me and nodding like, yeah, Beth, yeah, this happened, this <laughs> happened. And I was just sat there with my mouth open going, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. And the, the, the detail that Cormac delved into, re some of it really shocked me. It is shocking, isn't it? I mean, the bit I was hinting at during the interviews, I'm sure the listeners would have picked up on the fact that food was exported. I mean, whenever I read books or, or, or listen to people speak about the Great Famine, I always find that shocking. And of course, Cormac's correct. I mean, you do have to export food. You do have to make money. And, and the government position at the time was, well, the markets will be the cure. But on a humanitarian level, it just seems absolutely inconceivable that there's food leaving on ships when there's millions starving to death. That was the bit that really stood out to me in this in this interview. And it was something I was unaware of. It's just inconceivable. And it's a very, very emotive chapter of history. I mean, Bethan, you've got Welsh heritage somewhere in your family. I do have Irish heritage, but I was born in England. Um, I think it's a chapter of so much time's passed, but it's still a real sore point, I think, between British and uh, quotation marks and Ireland, Irish communities. There's a real sense of betrayal among some some people in Ireland for, for the way that the family was handled and, yeah. and the support or lack of yeah, which that was that was given. To be honest, I can I can see why. You can, can't you? I mean, what Cormac says is really interesting about using immigration as a tool and how that wouldn't be applicable today. I mean, we we've written a fair bit about famine recently. I mean, we. Staring down the barrel of it in Ukraine, unfortunately, as well. Really interested to hear him say that that wouldn't be an option today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what was your favourite part of that as someone that enjoyed history? Um, what was your sort of key takeaway from that, that conversation? I mean, I enjoyed all of it. I think a key takeaway for our audience is probably the way it changed farming. I mean, some of those statistics that Cormac rattled off, which, how impressive, by the way, just to know cultivation stats. <laughs> I mean, I wish I was as knowledgeable as that. <laughs> Some of those statistics really were shocking. I mean, you talk about, what did he say, six tonnes per acre in terms of cultivation, which then just fell through the floor and wasn't really rectified for another 50 years. I know. Um, that really stood out to me. Changed potato farming forever. And I suppose whether it's a positive or not is probably a bit too strong. But the fact that it arguably helps to diversify the diet a bit more may be a positive. Was that a result of the family or was that a result of just... As Cormac said, the Irish getting richer. Probably there's a debate to be had there. But the fact that potato crop in Ireland now, and as, as I mean, I find that amazing that Ireland imports potatoes. I know, exactly. You'd never think that, would you? No. Without no. saying that Italy imports pasta, you'd be thinking that's crazy. It's so strange, like, as, you know, Cormac was saying, they were so, and I think arguably still are, so intrinsically associated and linked with the potato Absolutely. they're getting in potatoes from elsewhere is just really bizarre how things change really and what was also interesting i think was it's something I, i've never considered really is the change in taste of the potato potatoes are shortage of potatoes I know, exactly, not. exactly. Would you want to eat a lumper? They don't sound very Well, not by the sounds of it, no. but the roosters, the, the successor, I mean, we still use roosters today. They're mm. in, certainly in the Minchin household. They're the roast potato of choice <laughs> by royal appointment. We love a rooster. So really, really interesting and uh, also depressing. I mean, she probably won't give us a shock to anybody that the poorest mm. suffer the most. 
to have it confirmed is still depressing though isn't it yeah absolutely I think I'm going to keep on the somber note as well Chris Elliott recently wrote a column for us in which he drew parallels to the great famines of Ireland um, in the 19th century to what's happening actually today and he's saying as well as others that we actually will see riots in, in the UK due to food insecurity food insecurity in the UK pre-COVID right was 7.6%. That rose to 10.8% between August 2021 and January 2022. And it's something which in the last six months has impacted 5.7 million adults. Yeah. In terms of addressing things like climate change, right, which is going to really influence food security. Yes, we may not see disease being a big issue, but certainly as climate conditions change that's going to be a huge issue on food insecurity because if you can't grow crops within regions where they once thrived what are you going to do I mean obviously I mentioned the genome work that kind of stuff is you know great we've got the advantage of technology and if we use it right we could save our planet or at least limit the impacts that climate change are going to have but the cost of living we just saw last month that food banks were having to waste Potatoes. That was heartbreaking, mm-hmm. too, wasn't it? That we covered it was heartbreaking. Yeah, because no one could afford to boil them. So there was a quote that was mentioned in a lecture I watched yesterday where the gentleman said, food insecurity is about money, not food. And I thought that was really, it was quite a poignant note. Absolutely. I mean, it's we've spoken a lot about history today and I think there are great lessons to be learned from the past. Mm. You've only got to look back throughout history. What causes, what's the main driver of social change throughout history? It's always hunger. Mm-hmm. The czarist governments weren't toppled by ideological ideas. They were toppled by people chanting land, bread, peace. They weren't toppled by people drinking coffee and talking about great political structures. The French Revolution, the French monarchs were toppled by hungry people. Mm. Hunger is a real motivator. And I read Chris's column, and it is concerning, isn't it? It is frightening. And when you start reading about people not being able to afford potatoes, you do think, well, I'm not quite sure where this train's headed, but I certainly certainly don't like it. Mm. And it's not just Chris saying this. There are so yeah. many notable figures in, you know, in various sectors that are saying riots in the UK, they aren't actually that unthinkable. You know, you wouldn't associate the UK with, with rioting, but you wouldn't associate the UK, I don't think, too much with food poverty. No, it's not just the UK either. I've recently been covering food insecurity in America. Mm-hmm. Food at home inflation hit the highest level since 1981, just last week at the time of recording. So the dollar in the average American family's pocket just isn't going as far. Mm. It's a pretty depressing world at the moment, Beth, isn't it? It is. And I'm really sorry to listeners because it's not, not the most um, lighthearted podcast, but I think it's important to talk about. Absolutely. And I think... We can't sit back and we can't pretend that it's not happening. No, we can't. As Bethan said, very somber to end on. But if you have enjoyed this episode of Food to Go, give us a like, give us a five star rating. It does actually really help um, our podcast. It get, helps us get noticed, gets us up the algorithm, and helps get really important messages like this one to reach even more ears. So do give us a like and a, and a rating if you do get a chance. But as ever, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us. And we look forward to bringing you another really great episode, hopefully a more cheerful episode very soon. We'll try our best, I promise. Thank you very much. Take care.